Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. So, hello, we're still at the PDAC, and it's my pleasure now to be talking to Brent Cook. Brent writes the newsletter Exploration Insights. He has he, he spends his time and has spent many years doing this, traveling the globe, looking at uh, mining properties, and then based on his findings, he either invests in those companies or he doesn't. And uh, he then writes about his investments and his findings in uh, his excellent newsletter Exploration Insights. I should say Brent has many years' experience as a geologist. Brent, welcome to the show. Um, I, I really enjoyed seeing your presentation yesterday and uh, one, of the, one of the things you said in your presentation that got me thinking is that um, with the market being as, as it is at the moment, a lot of success has been priced into a lot of companies and perhaps things are getting a little bit of frothy and uh, it might be healthy for a bit of failure to be priced in. I think, I think that's accurate enough to say. I mean, most of what these companies have got, there's like 1,300 listed junior companies in, on the venture exchange alone. They've got little more than geochemical anomalies or geophysical anomalies that, you know, we know the odds are more than likely going to turn up with nothing more than just geochemical or geophysical anomalies. Exploration is a very tough business, and Mother Nature has been very... Um, frugal in distributing economic ore deposits around the world. So I think what I'm seeing now, and I think you would agree probably, is that a lot of these really high-risk exploration companies are being priced as if they've actually found an economic deposit, which is not going to be the case most of the times. There are 600 booths here at the PDAC, and there are a lot of companies that, you know, you'll often find two or three companies in one booth, so there must be something like a 1,000 companies here. How many of those companies are actually going to build a, my, a viable mine? <laughs> good question. Um, the really good companies, the ones that find something of value, hopefully won't have to build it. It'll be bought by somebody. But I'd say, on average, your odds of success on any particular project are one in a 1,000. And you presumably you're talking to companies all day long, uh, and particularly here. What's the ratio of, of companies that you like to companies you just think, this nothing's going to happen with this? I'm, I'm very, very selective in what I buy because my newsletter is about what I am actually buying. So my money's on the table with subscribers. And when I put out a sell, I've got a self-imposed three-day wait before I can sell. So I'm, I'm a very, very cautious investor in this really high-risk sector. Um, in the portfolio now, there's about 15 companies. Last year, we bought seven and sold 10. Um, and so I'm very, very selective when I buy. I mean, there's certainly, in a market like this, you can make a lot of money buying lower quality uh, stocks, if you will, or plays. Um, but that's not really what I want to do. I think you need screens. You need to be very, very selective in what you buy, and, and that's what I am. Is I look for something that's got the real potential of turning into a, a world-class deposit and being bought by a major. Yeah, I mean, 2010 was Rick Rule described as, as, as a rip-snorting bull market, and uh, but it really was, a, a, pretty much everything went up, and 
you could make I mean are you ever cynical do you think I know this company's deposit isn't very good but I still think because of the people involved and because of the market conditions it's going to go up so would you ever speculate under those circumstances that's do you maintain your standards well that's a good question I mean if you lay that out in a newsletter this is you know a lousy property you know and the company's never going to find anything of value but I think it's a good stock play have I killed the stock play um, it's it's a tough one, and I, so I just don't do that. I see that happening, and I know I get a lot of questions from subscribers and that regarding those sorts of companies, and I will lay that out. But it's not something that I will uh, generally invest in in the letter because it sort of it's it's not true. And uh, when 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 um, there's kind of there's a famous chart, the life cycle of a junior miner, which you presented in your presentation, which shows the initial excitement when a company makes a discovery, and then there's the process when reality sets in and they have to actually build the mine. Your uh, and, and it kind of falls back until they eventually reach production, and, and then the stock starts rising again. Your play is that first stage. That first stage, the the rise in the in the. Uh in, in the discovery stage, I guess. And I, you know, I'll start at the very early stage when it's just people with a good idea or soil samples, that sort of thing, right through to drilling. But the key to that chart, and that is the most important chart for anyone investing in this sector, is you have to know ballpark what, what they're looking for, what they seem to have is actually going to be worth. If you don't know that, if you don't know the geology and mine costs behind it, basically turn the rocks into money, you don't know when to sell. Now, which, which metals do you like at the moment? Do you have a preference for precious metals, base metals, rare earth metals? I'm personally real keen on gold. It's just, you know, I like gold. I'm a gold. I've done a lot of that in my life. But I, I'm, not, I'm not metal specific in what I look at. I'm looking for world-class, high-margin deposits in any commodity because the reality is uh, we're producing a lot more than we're finding in almost all metals. Or I should say we're consuming more than that. So... The major mining companies are burning through their reserves every day. They've got to replace those reserves. So that it's, it's more about the quality of a deposit in whatever metal is what I'm looking for. And we've got copper projects in there. We had a nickel, platinum, palladium one. Uh, we've got a number of golds, some silvers, uh, potash. Now, I know I, I haven't uh, um, read the, the, the newsletter in full, so I don't know what your 15 top picks are, but I do know two of them, and they're both... We, we can talk about specific stocks in, in this if you'd like to, but they're both, they both follow the project generator model. Um, is that a model you like? Yeah, the project generator model is one whereby the company uses their intellectual capital to pr generate an idea, a target, and then they bring in somebody else, another company, to spend the money testing that target. I mean, if we go back to what I said earlier, the odds are one in a thousand. Why would you spend your money testing that when somebody else will, and you can move on and generate another one? And the real advantage to that is, is as shareholders, our dilution is minimized. Um, and we've got 100% of the company's intellectual capital, but we're not being diluted at the shareholder value. We're being diluted at the property level. Um, and what I really find about this model is it, it gives these smart guys and girls enough time to eventually come up with a target that keeps getting better. It may take five years. I mean, there's a number of them I can point to who have done that, uh, that we've invested in. Mirasol, um, Almaden, Virginia. These companies and Kamenak started off as prospect generators, and they eventually came across a project that was so good that they drilled it themselves. 
When that happened, we're looking at you know, 20, 30, 50 million shares outstanding instead of 200. Ah, so, so with the project generator model, you'll, you'll, you'll have a company and they'll, they might have five projects and, and four they quite like, so they'll farm those four out. And the one they think they've really got something here, they'll keep all to themselves. Exactly. And it takes a long time to find that one real good property. You don't find it the first year. It can take five years to run through the properties, the ideas, and that sort of thing. It's, it's a long process. Um, sometimes you can get lucky. There's a story about a kid who was bought a metal detector in London um, uh, about a month or two ago, and uh, within, I think, 12 yards of switching it on for the first time, he found some gold that had been buried 500 years ago, and it was, I don't know, a million pounds worth of gold or something. <laughs> but that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah, that's, that is the exception. <laughs> now, um, let's talk about countries. Uh, which countries do you like uh, for mining exploration at the moment? I'm more geologic and geographic terrain oriented. Um, probably the better question is what countries won't I go to? Okay, I'll <laughs> ask that then. <laughs> All right, I think Ecuador is very sketchy. Venezuela is an obvious no-go. Uh, Russia, I don't go to. China, I avoid. Um, not that things can't happen there, but it's my fear is that if you find something really good there, it's going to be tough to hang on to it. The value won't be fully realized. But not by you, by somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> With a Russian last, last name. Um, those are the areas I, I pretty well avoid. Um, other than that, though, I'll, I'll go about anywhere. If, if the geologic potential is commensurate with the, the, the risk. Okay, and uh, we talked about Colombia bef before the interview. Let's talk about Colombia now. Geologically, Colombia is a fantastic place to be exploring for gold, uh, just how the, the place has evolved um, over the, the millions of years. And because of the security issues they've, they've had in the past, it really hasn't seen the level of exploration that the rest of South America has seen. So in that respect, it's a fantastic place to be, and there is a lot of gold there. The, my caution on this is that because there's so much gold there, 90 percent, you know, there's uh, probably 100 companies in there now, 90 percent of those companies are going to find little more than a small high-grade vein. And you've got to know real quick, if you invest in these companies, if that's what the company's got and get out. I see. Now, how many 10 million ounce deposits have, are, are there in the world, would you say? Jeez, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, there, there can't be many. No, there's there's more than you'd think. Um, well, you throw in districts, but I would guess there's in the order of 20. And, and I mean, how many deposits of that magnitude have been found in, say, the last five or ten years? If you include the Porphyry Coppers gold systems, uh, we've got Oyo Togo, Northern Dynasty, um, I would guess in that range, uh, we're looking at probably 10 in that, in that, in that ballpark. Okay, I mean, I, w I was asking a slightly loaded question because, I mean, Colombia is a place, because of its previous under-exploration, that has the potential for elephant deposits like that to be found. Uh, certainly. I mean, Anglo Gold has got their um, Colossus deposit, which is in the order of 13 million ounces. Um, Ventana, which is the next big play there, uh, they've got an around three to four million ounces, I believe. That's a long way from ten, but, you know, it's a good deposit. Are you familiar um, with a company called Horseshoe Gold that are, in, are now becoming Cosigo Resources? No, I'm not. Are they in Colombia? Uh, they, are, they are in Colombia. I'll, I'll introduce you to them at some stage. 
Um, uh, so, so, um, so moving forward, if you were an investor now, would you be building up some cash? Would you be waiting for another opportunity? Would you be going in 100%? What, what would your strategy, or what would your, what is your strategy at the moment? Yeah, that's that's the good point. What am I doing? It's not necessarily what anybody else should yeah. be doing, but since that's what I talk about, what I'm doing, I've been very cautious. I'm I'm probably personally about 40% cash, and. I think we're going to see a very volatile market going forward. I mean, the world is fairly unstable. Oil prices, um, you know, the Dow, everything's done so well for so long that we're entering a volatile, volatile stage. If you don't have the cash, you can't take advantage of the volatility. So I'm, I'm in cash looking for you know, massive dips in stocks that I'm familiar with and have been wanting to buy but feel they're overvalued. So I'm looking forward to that, and I'm sitting in cash. Now, presumably, when you go out and visit a mine and you write about a mining company and you get to know the company, you build up relationships with the, uh, with the personnel in a mining company. And, and, you know, when you get to know someone, they become your friend. How do you, when you, the time comes that you think it's right to sell the stock, do, you, do, you, do, do, mining, do, do bosses get angry with you? How do you kind of deal with that? That's, a, that's always a tough one. Um, you know, the, I do build up good relationship with these people. Uh, I should point out that I don't get paid by any of them. What I, you know, I only get paid by subscribers and what I make off my investments. Um, but when a stock gets to be time to uh, sell, it's time to sell. And I'll give them a call the day before I put it out, the evening, and say, this is what I'm doing, this is why. Is, is there any reason why I really shouldn't be? Am I missing something? And that's what happens. I mean, it, you know, p- people buy stocks to sell them. That's the fact. So uh, and that's the way it is. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what my view of the rocks at some point in time are. It's what happens in the end. So, you know, I can be completely wrong. Uh, and, you know, time will tell. Um, okay. Well, Brent, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And, and maybe in the coming months, we, we, I can phone you up and we can do another interview again. That, that would be great. But why don't you um, give out your uh, website address and some details about your newsletter in case people want to find out more about it? All right. Thanks. Yeah, it's been good catching up with you here at PDAC. Uh, my, my website is, is my uh, URL is explorationinsights.com. Uh, my letter comes out more or less once a week. Oh, it's it's very frequent then. I, I, I thought it was um, a monthly thing. No, it's all too frequent. <laughs> um, and basically, I'm just talking about what I'm seeing in the market and what I'm buying, what I'm not buying. Or I follow the stocks that I do buy and explain if the company's making you know, our goals, meeting our expectations or not. Um, and that's basically what it's all about. So you're, you're constantly in, in touch with, with all the companies that you invest in, I mean, on, on a weekly basis, presumably. Yeah, my, my feeling is I want to. I don't want to know, you know, 100 or 200 stocks in the portfolio. I want to know 20 better than anyone else in the market, and that's to me my advantage. That's our edge is that I'll know the people, I'll know the properties better than anyone else, and that's in my view how to make money in this market. Very good. Just just as we close, I think it's worth um, singing the praises of the Toronto Venture Exchange because, uh, I mean. You know, for all the ups and downs, and for all the characters and the scoundrels and everything else involved in it, it is um, it is a wonderful market to make money in, and stocks really can double and triple and go up ten times. And agreed, there's nothing like the venture exchange or the or Toronto exchange um, for the junior exploration market because the the process is so well known, 
and, and ready to go. Last year, in the venture exchange alone, they raised $5.2 billion. That's a, That's a big number. That's a big number. That's a lot of money. More than I am. All right, well, Brent Cook, thank you very much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 